Welcome to season two. I just want to thank everyone who listened to my podcast during season one and a special thank you to those who made it one of their top podcasts. I'm glad you were able to learn and that many stories from season one resonated with you all. Special shout out to my best friend, Elisa, for writing the synopses for each episode and to my husband for encouraging me to start the podcast to begin with. I'm very excited for season two, hoping to have more diverse stories this season. Hope you enjoy. Let's get to the first episode. Welcome to Real, Raw, and Racialized, a podcast where we talk about how race has affected our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We share our personal stories to talk about how race has shaped our lens of the world and how we operate in it. My name is Erlinda, and I would like to introduce you to my guest, Dr. Liza Talusan. She's an educator, facilitator, and strategic change partner for organizations, corporations, leadership teams, schools, and individuals who are looking to build their skills in areas of diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and leadership. She is also the author of the new book, The Identity Conscious Educator, that just came out in April. She identifies as a Filipino-American woman. Welcome, Liza. Hello. Thanks so much for having me here today. It's an honor and privilege to be in conversation with you. This is amazing. Thank you so much. I am so honored that you agreed to be on my podcast. Um, But to start our conversation today, um, as I've started all my other episodes, um, when was the first time you realized you were a racialized being? Mm. I mean, so far back. So you're talking to, as you described, a Filipino American woman. So I have dark skin and black hair and um, my parents, when we were very little, so I must've been like two or three, moved us from downtown Boston, which is where they had come from the Philippines. And then they landed there and they like stayed there for a couple of years. And they decided, wouldn't it be great to move my entire Brown family to these Irish suburbs 20 miles outside of Boston, like could not be further from other black and brown people. So I feel like very early on, I don't have a memory of not being racialized, but I do remember real key ones. Um, Most particularly, my family would go to church every Sunday and every opportunity that my mom could find. And on I remember being in a sea of white people. There were no other people of color. And always, always, we would sit behind some young children who would turn around and stare at us and pull at the corner of their eyes. Like this was a regular occurrence. So that's what I mean. Like, I don't remember the first time, but we would regularly have that. I regularly had people use the old sing-songy, right? Like, do you speak Ching Chong type of thing with me? So I've got to say like elementary school, if not earlier than that. And it's, I've just always had racialized experiences in that way, but I would say church, (laughs) like church was the place that I remember the youngest. That's fair. I think um, the first time I had been asked this question, I also was like, I've always known I was Brown. What? I don't know. So it, it, it really took me a while to really think about it. Um, but I think you are the first person who's told me church, which also makes sense being Filipino. Um, and also with the eyes pulled, like I remember also in elementary school, they would do the like Chinese, Japanese, what are these as you eye pull? And I'm like, I'm just going to laugh because everyone is laughing, but I know this makes me feel uncomfortable and I don't have the language for it. Right. Right. Um, 
but also currently because you were saying that um in the sea of irish folks and irish catholics i think what was that like growing up in boston right like i used to live in boston and it was hard to find a filipino community correct so i have all these people in my life that i call titas titos ninongs who are absolutely not related to me. <laughs> so my parents were very privileged in the sense that they came over during a time of immigration when the US had opened their borders to a lot of professionals. So my parents came over as doctors and they that was also a time when a number of other doctors were coming over from the Philippines. So, you know, remember this is like pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, like they just like chismes, right? Like they were talking about, oh, you're Filipino? I met another Filipino. And then those two Filipinos would meet. And that's really how it happened. Like that was the social networking of the 1970s. And so my parents just started to amass these other Filipino friends. Then they would spend their weekends with them and parties with them. So I had like a ton of cousins who are not my cousins, right? A ton of titas and titos who are not my titas and titos. Um, and, and so part of it was just really trying to build this Filipino community on the weekends, for example. But this is where it also became complicated because I was like hella Filipino on the weekends, right? Hanging out, eating lechon and rice and pancit, like rocking with all these other Filipino people. And then Monday would come along and I'd have to be like white Liza, right? Like I'd have to go to school and go to brownies and Girl Scouts. And my dad signed us up for like every church sports league and and I would have to speak a particular way. And it, so there was a ton of, we, you know, the name we now know it as code switching. We didn't call it code switching back then, but um, that's how I think we survived is on the weekends, we had this place where we could just be ourselves. My parents could speak Tagalog. And of course, outside of the home, it was English only. It was not really talking about who we were, trying to fit in. I'm doing air quotes for those of you on audio, like trying to fit in as best we could, which of course we never fit in, right? But it was just this, I don't know, the hazards of being one of the only people of color in a predominantly, and I mean predominantly like we were one of the only ones, like predominantly white space, yeah. Yeah, something you said about um, what you said with white lies and code switching. Um, how do you think you learned that you had to code switch? Because uh, I think you, I, gosh, I think like with anything, you get put in your place real quick, right? You get punished real quick. So um, I did not have the experience of bringing, and I'm going to use the language of my classmates, like a lunch that smelled bad, <laughs> which was probably just like, people will pay 25 bucks for now, right? Like fish and rice and soy sauce, right? In the seventies, that was like so gross to people. Um, and so I just remember hearing so many stories, whether it was in books that I read or examples from my sisters who people would say like, ew, like, what are you bringing to school? Like, why is your lunch in a Tupperware? And I was the third child. So by then my parents had like figured out, right? Our kids were getting are picked on and bullied. So I went to school with Lunchables. So they have Lunchables back again now, but like that was such a Lunchables thing back in the day are completely different than they what are now. I'm very jealous of the I, Lunchables now. <laughs> like Lunchables were the SHIT back in the day. Like it was so amazing. Like you, you knew you had made it if your mom packed you a Lunchable. And so, um, so she would do that. And I would be like, please don't let us, please don't send us in with leftovers. Like my mom would make me a roast beef sandwich with mustard every day. 
And that's what I mean. Like we had to, we had to, <laughs> we had to eat white. Like, I'm just going to come out and say it in that way. Right. We had to eat this very non-Filipino way. And then we would like binge on adobo and pancit and inuguan for all my Filipino listeners out there. Like that would be our weekend food. But I think it was really about being teased and bullied so quick, right? Like, ew, what's that? Or, you know, definitely people were like, why is your skin so brown? Why does your skin look dirty? And so it was this constant othering all the time. So I think it was about wanting to avoid punishment, right? Avoid attention, which is why I did things like put, okay, I'm again, I'm talking so 1980s folks. Like there was this spray called sun in <laughs> and you would like spray it in your hair. But for Filipino and Asian people, it just turned your hair orange. It didn't turn it like gorgeous and blonde. Yeah. So I would do all these things to try to fit in. And of course, everything that I tried to do to fit in just made me even more as an outsider. Yeah. It was constantly trying to avoid punishment from my peers. That makes sense. I would say our version of sun in when I was growing up was like lemon juice in your hair and you just sat in the sun and I completely didn't understand the point of that. Um, but But I I I think, can mm -hmm. I say, but one amazing thing. So again, this is for those who are younger listening, being like, what is the big deal? Cause then I turn on the TV and I look at BTS, right. And like, that's the same shade of orange, (laughs) like some of them as they color their hair, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the same shade of orange that I got made fun of for. And now it's like beautiful, right? It's, they're so handsome and they change their hair. And like, every time I see that shade of orange though, even though I know it's such a beautiful thing these days, I have this like stress reaction of going, Ooh, you sun in wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't let it set long enough. Right. But these beauty standards have really flipped in the past couple of decades. I think a lot of things have really flipped. That's actually similar but different. Feel the same way about bidets. Partly because like (laughs) with Dabo's growing up, like I was always like, right. I had the squirt bottle growing up back home was by the toilet. Like I would get so embarrassed when my like friends would come over and be like, why do you have a squirt bottle at home? And I'm like, just like, I'm like, just ignore it. It's I'm like, I don't know how to explain it to you. I don't. And And like the amount of like how much that made me feel different and how I like rejected the thalbot. And now bidets are huge. Everyone is like, you should get a bidet. Like they're amazing, yada, yada, yada. And I sit here being like, y'all made fun of me for doing the exact same thing without a motor. That's essentially the difference. (laughs) Right. We've been saying for decades that your butts have been dirty, right? Like, and now you all are hip to this. I also say this as a house that has multiple bidets, though. <laughs> no, same. I also have bidets. My parents were like, you bought a house, you're getting bidet. We're gifting you bidets. And I was like, thank you so much. I love Perfect. this. But like <laughs> when bidets were getting big and friends were telling me about bidets, I really sat there being like the amount of embarrassment I felt totally. growing up. Totally. And I have to say, again, it's like this, it's this stress response. So I was visiting my sister, she's in California and there's like, there's a table, right? 
And I do, I have this stress response where I'm just like, ooh, <laughs> and yeah, I'm rocking around my house with like multiple bidets. It's basically the same thing, right? But how we've been, for me, how I've been punished, right? What is that bucket in your bathtub? Like, what is that bucket next to the toilet? It was always, and it was never asked with curiosity, right? It was always asked with judgment. So um, I feel you on that. I still have this like lingering stress response when I see that. Yeah, I I think that's interesting of how like trends change, how they affect how you view things. I think also to your point, like fish and like ethnic food is now like more expensive and seen as like the better food. Not that they're not wrong, but like the amount now of like exploration of food and exploration of all these different things is encouraged comparatively um, to when a lot of us were younger of like the smelly lunchbox and like, Um, what is that? Because even now um, as a professional, sometimes I'm like, I'm bringing fish to work. Like, I don't know, like, this is good food. (laughs) Like, I never realized my food had a smell until college. And that's when like, uh, my roommates told me that like, oh, corned beef smelled weird. And I was like, it does? (laughs) It does. Well, it is, there is a particular like Filipino food smell, right? It tends to be really vinegary and there tends to, it's not like fermented, right? But there's this vinegar smell that feels so yummy. So like I have actually, for a little bit, I was trying to be really environmental and organically green and all that. And so I bought all these vinegar based cleaners and then I was just like, this just <laughs> makes me hungry. Like, I need to stop. I, I, I swear I'm still environmentally correct, but like, I can't use vinegar-based cleaners because it just made me hungry all the time. I was like, who's cooking adobo? Like, what's going on here? Yes, my mother-in-law I also cleans everything with vinegar. And I'm like, at first I was like, I use this for dipping sauce. <laughs> this makes me feel weird to also use it for cleaning things. Right. Okay. I'm about to like violate every Boston rule, right? Cause I'm here in Boston, which is like home of lobsters and lobster rolls. I can't believe I'm admitting this on a podcast, but I did not realize that people dipped lobster in butter, which is like a thing. Girl, I dipped lobster in vinegar, like my entire childhood. I know brace yourself. People just had like gag responses on your podcast, <laughs> but legit, like that's how it was. So you're talking about dipping sauce. We dipped, we dipped like lobster in vinegar. And now as an adult, I do dip it in butter. So I'm redeeming myself here, but that was the thing. Like it was the condiments and the cleaning piece and the, you know, filler, (laughs) like everything in this Filipino household that I grew up in. (laughs) Yes. I didn't realize how much vinegar I use for everything until I started (laughs) cooking on my own, but I've also never had lobster with vinegar, Uh, Mm -hmm. but I'm not against it. Mm I think it's just, I grew up in Houston where like crawfish boils are a thing. So it was more like crawfish seasoning. Yeah, I hear that. (laughs) But um, bringing it back um, to where you grew up in Boston and kind of code switching, did you talk, um, are you fluent in Tagalog? Did you talk Tagalog in your household? I am not. And I think like you know, we, when I speak with other Filipinos about this experience of growing up and where we grew up and how we grew up, I, you know, I'm in therapy years later about it, but I, I believe that when my parents immigrated here, first of all, they didn't realize that they were going to stay. They were just here. They thought they were going to be here for a little bit and then bring their family back home. But I think 
my understanding, my, as I you know, like totally psychoanalyze my parents, uh, I think that the idea was that they wanted their children to have what they considered an American experience, right? And so um, they eventually, of course, did stay much longer. But, you know, I think for them, they didn't want us to speak Tagalog. They wanted us to blend in. Again, now looking back, you're like, look at me. <laughs> I did not blend in for all of those audio listeners. I am very brown. Like I have very black hair. And so... Um, I think they wanted us to blend in. They obviously have accents, Filipino accents. And I think they didn't want us to have that. They had sent me and my older sisters to like this accent type school. I don't think they'll ever admit that that was what it was called, but I don't even have a Boston accent if you notice that. So it was really stripped of this Boston accent, this regional accent. It was stripped of what would we would then learn as a Filipino accent. Um, and so I think like they... I don't think they intended for us, and again, I'm going to use particular language, like to whitewash us, but in many ways, I do think they were being benevolent to do that. They didn't want us to get teased, even though that was unavoidable. They didn't want us to stand out, even though that was unavoidable. And I really do think they believed not speaking Tagalog was going to make life easier for us. And then it was until I met more Filipinos who were like, you don't speak Tagalog? Like, what kind of Filipino are you, right? Or like, you don't know about our country or our history. You don't dance tinnacling. And I'm like, dude, did I, did I remind you I grew up with Irish kids? Like, no, I could tell you all about Irish history. I could not tell you the history of my own people. I did not know who Jose Rizal was. Like all of that I learned as a grown up. but I do think it was, and I don't think that story is uncommon from other immigrants, but um, it really was, I believe, my parents being really kind and benevolent to remove a lot of those Filipino influences. As an adult, I've tried to do more, but my oldest child is finishing up her first year in college, and she just took Tagalog for a whole year. And ooh, that child rubs it in my face every time. She has whole conversations with my parents wow. in Tagalog. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, have fun, y'all. That's great. What about you? Did you grow up speaking Tagalog? Did you learn it? Like, what's that? No, story? well, so I'm the oldest. So I think because I was the oldest, my parents spoke Tagalog in front of me the most. Mm -hmm. So I can like hear it for the most part, understand it. I can, I say I'm fluent in Thuglish. Yeah. So I can get by. <laughs> I've definitely convinced a lot of people that I'm fluent absolutely not fluent um but I've definitely convinced a lot of people by talking in Thaglish um but it's funny because like people from the Philippines who hear me talk know I'm not fluent and then mm -hmm. I think people who are American and fluent think I am fluent and maybe like an international Filipino who like has money and can speak both English and Tagalog or um, something of that nature. It's really interesting to be, to hear because like immigrants will be very much like, no, I know you're American, like your accent is really bad. But then like, I'll talk to like people, maybe like recent immigrants who will be like, no, you're from the Philippines. Like where from the Philippines are you from? And I'm like, but I'm not. Um, so it's really interesting. And I think as I've gotten older and then um, because I live in Jersey. And when I first moved to Jersey, I lived in Jersey City. Um, I found people to like practice with me um, to try to get through. I've done classes. Um, so different things, but I very much 
am not fluent. Like I feel like a four-year-old when I attempt mm. to speak because it, I feel like it's very broken, but people I've talked to say that like, it's good enough. Like it's fine. Like it doesn't feel broken, but like, I have that like imposter syndrome feeling that it, it feels like I speak broken Tagalog. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think about the experiences of English language learners as well. So many people will say like, I learned how to speak English watching TV or, or like write some of these other influences. And, you know, for me, when my parents come over and my sister Grace comes over, they do put on like via YouTube, you can kind of get like Filipino TV and whatever. And so they'll spend the weekend watching it and I can pick it up because I have context cues, right? Mm-hmm. So like, if it's a cooking show, like I'm like, oh, okay, they said Ghanaian, like I got this. Or of course there's been a lot on the election. And so like, we've been watching some of that and I can kind of tell if someone's happy or mad about the election, right? But so for me, it's it's really context cues that help me to get there. But I wouldn't even say I'm fluent in Taglish, but I can it, pick up context cues. It's really funny because when I watch like teleseries or movies, I actually don't like Filipino teleseries because of love teams and it makes it so predictable. Um, <laughs> but when I watch movies afterwards, my husband has told me like, I'll speak in an accent or oh. like, I'll only talk in Tagalog. So like, that's really interesting and in how um, I've picked up things uh, or I'll be really into, have you ever seen Jollibee's Valentine commercials? They are mini teleseries in and of themselves. I love, I love them annually <laughs> and I will search them every year. They do them for every holiday, but I think the Valentine's ones are the best. Um, I've showed them to people who have never experienced Jollibee. And then when I take them to an actual Jollibee, they're like, I expect to break out in emotions as soon as I walk in the door. And I'm like, you know, this is just a burger spot. (laughs) Okay. I was going to ask you. So poll time, question time, like yes or no to what we call Filipino spaghetti, right? Spaghetti and hot dogs. I'm also a no. (laughs) we've just lost all your Filipino listeners. It's fine. <laughs> I've, I've, we, I've talked to in another one of my episodes, me and uh, my guests talk about how we're actually pro Chow King over Jollibee. So it's mm. fine. <laughs> it's fine. I've already talked about very um, conflictual food opinions, but yes, I okay. actually don't like Filipino spaghetti, but my husband loves it. And my husband's not Filipino. He yeah, loves Filipino spaghetti. Either. Not a fan. Okay. Well, so other food question, halo halo. Yes or no. Um, I actually love halo halo, but it took me a while. Like I it, I used to hate like the beans and stuff and I would just mm. eat like the ice and the flan <laughs> and the ice cream. Um, but as I think, as I've gotten older and have learned that people can make halo halo differently, Yes. I have thus learned that I'm like, actually, I really like halo halo. My favorite part yes. is actually pinipig, the like crispy rice on top. That is actually yes. my favorite. <laughs> but that is also it's a rare topping. Like not everyone puts that on. Um, so when I get it, I get really excited. Yeah, it's like 50 cents extra. <laughs> it's amazing at the store. So I married a Puerto Rican man and he is horrified by halo halo. He's like, yeah, halo halo. He's like, why would you put beans as a dessert, like beans are not meant to be soaked in corn syrup. They are not meant to be sweet. He's like, absolutely. Like you can make halo halo when I'm not home. This is so offensive, but I will tell you again, this is like the divided poll. 
I cannot hang with the jellies and the macapuno. Like I can't, it's too, it's a texture thing for me in the halo halo. So just give me some beans, throw on like the Rice Krispies and the ube and the like condensed milk and you've got me, but I could do without the jellies. That's interesting. Growing up was the beans were like the hardest part for me, but now, now I understand them. Um, my husband is black and Korean, so he loves halo halo because it's essentially like bingsu. Um, but yeah, it's also funny because his favorite Filipino food is actually denuguan, which I feel like is so rare. It's, it's so good. It's so good. Did you call it something else as a child? We did not know that it was pig blood. No, I, 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 I knew. I, I think I knew. I know we also talk about <laughs> calling it like chocolate meat, but I'm yeah. pretty sure I've always known what it was. So I did not know what it was until I was well into my teens and we called it black gravy. Um, and just because that's what it is. <laughs> so it was very descriptive. And then I think it was a teen, I was a teenager when I think it was my older sister, of course, who was like, you know what that is, right? And I'm like, it's delicious. She's like, that's pig's blood. And honestly, it didn't, I didn't mind. Like, I still love it. Whenever I'm feeling sick or just sad mentally and emotionally, my mom will make Dunablon. So it's, it's like a, a love, it's a love language for me. So uh, mine is synagogue that for me is synagogue mm-hmm. um but it's really funny now because my because my parents have learned that my husband's favorite is Dunuguan mm. they will always make it now whenever they come over just for him nice. so I've now eaten Dunuguan more often than I ever have before so for all you listeners out there write down these names <laughs> of all the things that you got to try just know um, also have you ever seen my crazy ex-girlfriend yes totally and how that she tries to make the new one for the filipino thanksgiving i was like i actually love this that was a really good show it got a little weird at the end but it was i loved it i loved seeing these filipino families and hearing the occasional tagalog like i still really trip out when i hear tagalog with like the latest spider-man or whatever right the lola was yes i also i've talked about this with other people that i love that they didn't sub they didn't caption what she said and so (laughs) because I understand more Tagalog than my brother um and and we had watched it together (laughs) I was the only one in the theater laughing (laughs) during (laughs) when she spoke and when if you understood what she said and then heard how he paraphrased it it's hilarious but I was the only one laughing in the theater and my brother was like just make it more obvious that you're the only one who understands it's amazing I love that you got the inside jokes um but to kind of switch us up a little bit um especially because you talked about how your first racialized experience was in church and then being a Filipino American I feel like being Filipino Catholic comes up in a lot of Filipino conversations and identity. I think, where do you sit on the spectrum conversation of religion? I love this question because I am complicated about it, like really complicated. And I wanna say, I think, I feel like it's such a gift to be able to talk about how complicated it is. So I'll start off with, again, my parents, or my parents immigrated, My more my mom is super Catholic. My dad kind of comes along for the ride, but we were like every Sunday church goers, right? As kids growing up, like we did all the sacraments. We 
you know, of course, anytime someone passed, like the novenas were always at our house. I mean, there, there were more pictures of the cross than there probably were of me and my siblings in the house, right? I mean, it was just, but for me, that was normal. Again, remember, I grew up in an Irish town. So like everybody, except for a couple families were Catholic. So the Catholic piece of my upbringing was like just very much embedded. I think though, as I started to get older, and I really started to understand more about sexual orientation, for example. And again, in the 80s, we weren't talking about marriage equality back then, right? But certainly there were gay couples that we knew who were in long-term relationships, again, not in terms of like federally recognized marriage at that point. And so I just remember thinking like, but, you know, the same questions of complication, like, doesn't God love everybody? Like, why am I being told that people who identify as gay are bad? Like, I obviously have gay family members who were very closeted, right? Like it was just this, that was like for me, the eighties and nineties, this really complicated piece. And then I think like for a lot of people going away to college just gave me new opportunities to learn about other religious identities and experiences. I still went to church in college though. I did not go to a Catholic school, but I was still a pretty frequent flyer at church. But then I started to study things like Buddhism and Hinduism, Islam. I study, I started to um, be in community with people who were Christian, but not Catholic. Like I didn't know what Pentecostal meant. Like I just, I didn't know these things. I really grew up in a sheltered community in terms of religion. Um, the only deviation to that is I took piano lessons as a child and I took piano lessons from a man who was the organist at a universal Unitarian church, like the only other church in my town that was not a Catholic church. And I do remember clear messages of seeing a rainbow flag, not knowing what a rainbow flag was at the church, which is very much in the tradition of Unitarians. I just didn't make the connection. And so for me, it was both this very Catholic piece, but then also on the sideline, I had this message where there was a church and a rainbow flag, like, what is that? That kind of came up for me later when I really started to reconcile who is this God that people are telling me about that punishes folks, <laughs> right? That says you have to like not love people. Like it just didn't make sense to me. It was in my senior year of college that I met my husband. Mm -hmm. He came from a family of Pentecostal pastors. And so I started to learn just in different ways how people worship, like at the church, right? It's like, it's like aerobics, right? Stand up, sit down, kneel, do this thing, be quiet. When I went to church with him, um, it's charismatic right? People are up and down the aisles. People are praising loudly. There's call and response. People are dancing, right? They're overcome by the spirit. And I just remember being like, what is going on? I literally stood there with my hands folded while everyone was praising and worshiping. So again, it was another time for me where I was like, but God loves these people. <laughs> like God, they're celebrating God in this way. So I say, I started out my story by saying it's complicated for me because I very much still identify as Catholic. I have lots of issues with how hateful and restrictive some of the teachings, some of the interpretations of the teachings have been. I still very much believe in the story of where Jesus was or originated from. Had to, he had to have been a man of color. He had to have had black curly hair. And yet all over my mom's house is blonde haired blue eyed Jesus right? There's even a photo, a painting in their house of this blonde haired, blue eyed Jesus. It's almost like the 12 disciples table and that Jesus is surrounded by Filipino kids. And I'm just like, mom, stop. <laughs> Can we not do white Jesus in this house anymore? And 
Um, now in my life, I do work with a lot of Catholics and Catholic schools, Catholic girls schools in particular, as they try to wrestle with uh, how do we become more inclusive around gender identity? We know that we have queer kids at our schools, and we know that we have transgender students at our schools, and they are doing a really good job of asking themselves the question, are we, are we a community that really believes that God is in everyone, or are we a community that believes God can only be in some people? And they're really wrestling with that. And I love that they're wrestling with that. So as a Catholic, part of that strategy that I do is help them to figure it out. I don't tell them what they should do, although I have very clear opinions, but I help them just like it took me 20 years, but I, I help them to wrestle. What does it mean to be Catholic today? What does it mean to be a Catholic faith of love and humanity? And how are our current systems not reflective of love and humanity? And so that's the complicated journey I'm in now. I have to admit during the pandemic, I stopped going to mass in person. I recently went, my nephew's first communion was this weekend. And it was the first time I had been in church since like 2019 or so. And there was something really loving about it. And there was something that I really enjoy. I feel like I can both enjoy my faith and enjoy the comfort that prayer and God give me. And I can also be very critical of its exclusion. It's how some people practice hate through the banner of religion. And I think it's okay to be complicated about that. Where do you fall in that? Like, where is that? What does that look like for you? I think I feel the same way. Like I, I say I'm Catholic, but what does that mean? And I'm like, that's hard. It is um, hard. Like, I think for relapsed Catholics, I seem very religious for very religious folks, I seem not religious. So it's very hard. Um, I really go to mass now for Filipino mass. Yeah. I think because Filipino Catholic music, yeah. I really enjoy. And so, <laughs> and like the community, even though I don't know anyone in the church, like the community, I feel is like comforting to me. Mm -hmm. um, and luckily, like I, there's a church near me that like also has like a Santo Nino in it. So it also yeah. feels more like this is like my community, even though like, like I said, like I don't know folks, but I think to your point about um, how uh, like people kind of rethinking what their Catholicism looks like, I think yeah. is especially because of the new, well, he's not new anymore, but he's essentially new. Um, the current Pope and yeah. how, all of his different teachings are like considered more progressive. Um, and I've met other Catholics who are like, no, he's a fake Pope. And like, he's an imposter. And I'm like, because he says something different than what other Popes have said, like, that's wild because I, like, I went to, to Catholic school essentially all my life. So like, I was taught that essentially you vote for the Pope who represents what God is saying, like his word technically should be infallible. Yeah. So because he's saying something that you don't like, you automatically list him as, yeah. as not. And mm -hmm. I'm like, that's interesting when um, before everyone, you know, like, it's just interesting of how like opinions and perceptions um, around things are very different. Um, but I also agree with you that like when I've met non-Catholic Christians and how their prayers are different. Um, the first time I went to like a 
a Christian retreat, um, my friend prayed with me and I was like, this is a very different prayer. I'm very overwhelmed. This is not what Catholic prayers are like at all. Um, and it's very different. Also, I went to this DC when I was in DC, there was this Catholic church. Cause I happened to be there for Easter. So I was like, I have to go to church. I found this church that essentially ran like a Baptist church, mm. but it was Catholic. Yes. And I was very confused, <laughs> but I also loved it. Cause I truly sat there yes. and I was like, am I yes. in a Catholic church? Yeah. I'm very confused. Yeah. Um, and it listed itself as like the African-American church of DC, Catholic church of DC. And it was so interesting because it ran like a Baptist church, yes. but it was Catholic. And I was like, I love this. This yeah. is great. Um, so I think it's hard essentially it's complicated, right? Yeah. It's complicated. It, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, say, go ahead. I think because also I got married in the church, I think it's even harder. My husband is also not Catholic. And so having conversations with him about this was also very different. And um, he grew up non-denominational Christian and did missionaries. And so like we've, he also has told me when I brought him to church, he's like, why do you get up and sit down so often? This is a lot. And I'm like, what do you mean? This is normal. Right. And he's like, no, this is weird. <laughs> Yeah. And that every church like does it differently. I mean, you know, in the past 10 years, even the Catholic church has changed. So, you know, I obviously had like 30 years learning the prayers a particular way. And then when I went to my nephew's first communion, I was like, oh, they changed the words for that one. Oh, yeah. Oops, they changed a lot, especially because of COVID. Yeah. 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 They changed a yeah. lot. Like there was also like a new reinterpretation of the Bible because they realized they translated it wrong. This was like a couple of years ago, but the, they changed the prayers then. And then because of COVID, they changed a few more prayers. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's been really interesting to see how it's changed. Um, yeah. But only in the interest of time, I have one more question before we close out. Yes. Um, especially because you said you, it, uh, your family immigrated here in the 70s. We're planning yeah. on leaving, um, mm -hmm. but stayed. And then because the election current recently, um, I guess my first question is, is mm. it, um did they not go back because of dictatorship and did you all leave because of the dictatorship? Yeah, my parents definitely left because, well, one again, let's make, let's put on the table, they had privilege to leave, right? So there was, there was an option for them to leave, which a lot of Filipinos did not have. Um, but second, yes, I mean, they could not see a future for themselves under martial law. And a lot of their family had to stay behind because they didn't have the privilege to get these visas, these medical visas and work in the United States but they saw an opportunity to leave. They did not plan on staying here. And so um, they, it's you know public knowledge. My sister wrote a whole book about this. They overstayed their visas. They were undocumented in this country. They now of course are citizens, um, but they, they thought they were gonna go back. And I think, you know, it's one of these things then you have a child and then you build a life and then you open your medical practice and oh my gosh, there's no way we can go back, right? And again, I think about all the families for whom forced deportation is a reality, that they've gone back to these countries that they have no history in. And so, um, yeah, I, I think um, it's probably not surprising that they, and I by default am really worried and nervous for the Philippines. It was also this experience of being a Filipino in America and watching during the Duterte times too. And of course we were getting news in a particular way. I wanna honor that that narrative exists. But um, I think there are real co concerns and hesitations and worries that the new incoming person shares the same name and the same history as the previous dictator. Um, 
My parents are at an age now where most of their family and their siblings are not in the Philippines anymore, but I certainly have cousins there. And um, yeah, it's deeply concerning about what's happening. And then also a little bit not surprising, right? Given kind of the corruption in the history of the Philippines, it is both disappointing and not surprising in a lot of ways. Um, I do want to go visit the Philippines. I've thought about bringing my family there and to visit. And um, I would be lying if I didn't say that, yeah, I, I, I question that decision now to vacation there. What about you? What's going on for you in this conversation? I think it's hard um, because, yeah, my my parents also, well, my parents immigrated separately also in the 70s. But I think because like when I've talked to my parents about it, like my mom was 17 when she left. So she mm -hmm. was saying like, if you weren't like a known rebeller, I guess, <laughs> um, you were free to leave, like you were fine. And so in her mind, like martial law was just the law, like nothing actually happened. And like, mm -hmm. as I've gotten older and kind of like done my research and learned, like I, I know things have happened. Um, I've also met people my age who have thus um, immigrated from the Philippines and are here. And they've also said like, they didn't learn any of this. They learned American history. They didn't learn yeah. Filipino history in the right. Philippines. Right. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like, it's that, like it's, it's mixed feelings. It's a lot of like, okay, what more is going to happen now? Um, I think the other part of this too is, so I've actually met Lenny Robredo. Um, I met her during what I, I interned in the Philippines and I've actually oh. met her when she was a Senator. Um, and I loved her as a Senator, just like, I didn't even talk to her long, but just seeing how different she is comparatively wow. to other people who have wow. privilege and money in the Philippines. I already was like, I know she's a woman of the people, like automatically yeah. in the like very small interactions I had with her. And so very much so I was very much, I mean, if I could vote, I would have voted for Lenny. Yeah. Um, so I think watching her go through it is hard. And especially because like, her husband also was assassinated. She's raising three girls on her own. I follow right. her on Instagram. And right, right after the election, she flew to New York. So her daughter could graduate at NYU. Right. Um, so I think, I don't know, it's a lot. Like, I don't know if I still fully have words, but I think it's more of like, I think I live in a space and know enough Filipinos who similarly have educated themselves in knowing what has happened. Yes. But I think the part that hurts a little in my soul is all the other Filipinos I know who don't know what happened and are now like, oh, something happened in the Philippines. Like we now have to educate ourselves and learn. And I'm like, you didn't do this before. Um, and I think right. that's the part that hurts is I'm like, but I, I think I learned these things because my dad, I hated history growing up. My, my dad was really into like Filipino history. And so uh -huh. that's kind of how I learned and got really into it. So he was the one who taught me a lot of these things. Um, and so I think that's kind of where my base knowledge, I guess, is. And I mm -hmm. think like I'm I'm trying to then give grace to those who like didn't have a dad like that, who was like really into yeah. Filipino history. Because, um, yeah, I think that's the part that I'm like, do you all recognize what's happening? Right, right. And for those of us who are here in the United States, I mean, it mirrors a recent election that we had, right, around people kind of voting against their own interests and this revisionist version of who's fighting for you, right? And I think, um, you know, unfortunately, the last the president over there as well, I think had really similar 
tendencies as the one that we had here. And so it's it's interesting to watch, certainly as both a historian and somebody who follows current day politics, people need to be watching as we see like things that happen all, all over the world impact us here as well. And I do think this election will impact the people in the United States in different ways as well. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think that was similar to like what happened during Caterthe's presidency. Um, I don't know. So we'll see. Like, I think right now it is just a, we'll see what happens, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, I don't know. I think it's just very interesting, um, partly because I also went to this fundraiser for Lenny's campaign yeah. hosted by drag queens. Um, <laughs> and the drag queen host talked about how like, this is important because she was like, you need to know your history. This is important. Yeah. I left my family and I left because of Marcos dictatorship. So you all need to understand why this is important. Educate yourselves. So I think that's kind of the, I don't know, I guess like the call to action per se of like really understanding why this is important and like right. what's actually happening. Right. Um, right. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, I think right now it's like a, we'll see. Yeah. And to, you know, to kind of end on this really promising note, I just appreciate the level of transparency, even just that we can have about our feelings about the election. Like you want to talk about real, raw, and racialized. I mean, we know people who've been jailed for expressing their opinions on a podcast about the dictator or the elections. And, you know, I feel really fortunate to be in conversation with you in a place where we can be so open. And to be honest, there was a piece of me that was like, don't say it, Liza. Because <laughs> like, I mean, I know I, that's again, that like to bring in a theme of those little moments of stress trauma. Like my parents were very careful about in the seventies, how they talked about the Philippines and whether they did or didn't. And to be honest, the reason why, like, I always chuckle when I think about the work that I have chosen is when I was growing up, my parents were like, all right, kids, don't get into trouble. <laughs> Just keep it quiet fly under the radar. And of course I chose anti-racism work. Like I'm literally always getting in trouble. And, you know, I spoke, I would be quoted a lot by the local papers and my dad would feel both proud. Like, look, my child's in the paper. I'm like, yeah, I'm in the paper for causing trouble. And he's like, yeah, I, let's not talk about that part. <laughs> but I just, I want to thank you or Linda for creating the space to have these very real conversations and the privilege for us to be able to do so because this is how we can talk about race. Like this is how we talk in a real way about race is being open and trustful with each other. And so I'm just so grateful that you've invited me to be here today to talk about everything from the Inuguan to adobo to religion to like elections. Like this is the most dope podcast ever. <laughs> like, talking about just everything under the sun, but under this common theme of what does it mean to be real, raw, and racialized. So just props to you and your amazing work and all these episodes. And I'm just so excited to be a part of this. So thank, thank you. you. I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, I think that's also how people's lives are. Is it's not yes. just right? Like, yeah. um, I think this was I had to learn this in grad school one time when I was the first person. I'm a person of color who was overseeing a group of white students for the first time. And I had like this like imposter syndrome feeling. And I talked to um one of my directors and she was like, you don't only talk to people of color about being a person of color. You talk to them about other things. So you can talk to white students about other things. And I was like, you're right. Like, oh, yeah. duh. Um, and I, I don't know, like we're multifaceted people. And so the conversations I like to have are then thus multifaceted. Um, but I, I think to your point, like 
it, it is a lot like to, to have these conversations and not you're to not feel at risk of talking about yeah. these things, um, truly is a privilege. And, and especially thinking about, um, shoot, she, I lost her name, Maria Riza. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. how like her whole life has been changed. It's, yes. it's been a lot. Um, so I like, I, I wait with bated breath of saying, we'll see how the next six years goes. Um, mm -hmm. But to close us out, um, if you want to talk about your new book, sure. that would be great. Thank you. Yeah. So it was two years labor of love during the pandemic when I was just holed up in my house. And a lot of the work that I focus on is about identity and how we show up in the world. And so, I mean, obviously so much of what your podcast is about and how you give space for people to talk about their first messages of being racialized and their experiences. And so this book is a tool to help people build those habits and skills. As you and I were sharing, like not everybody has these conversations. Not everybody feels the same level of confidence. And I wanted to give people something to be able to build those skills. So um, there's a little bit of just knowledge sharing. There's some stories that I have from my own family. Some of them we even talked about here today. And there's a section where you just do some really good deep reflection about things like race and sexual orientation and gender identity and class and disability. And then there's a section where it's like, hey, now go have a conversation with someone, right? Like, don't just keep it all in, go find someone to have a dialogue with. And I would emphasize like, you know, get you and a buddy and like, listen to all of our Linda's podcasts and then chat for like 30 minutes about each episode. I mean, that's how we build these habits and skills. And so that book is just a way to be able to, another way to do that. I focus a lot on schools, although it's not exclusive to schools, because I believe that teachers also need to be fostering a community where we're, we're giving young people the tools to have these conversations so that we're not like adults who are fumbling our way through, but as kids, we can learn these habits and skills early. So you can buy it wherever books are sold. I'm asking people to please uh, buy it from POC owned spaces, independent bookstores. Um, and I hope it's a wonderful tool for people as you build some identity conscious practice. Thanks for letting me talk about it. No problem. That book sounds amazing. Um, and I know it's a great tool for a lot of folks because a lot of people keep asking me for resources. So I'll just add this to the list. Um, but thank you so much for joining thank me you. in conversation and being on my podcast. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thank you.